and uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, please. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll commence reading at verse 1. Paul called us on a as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sothenes our brother. To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do bow again and we just thank you, Lord, for the wonderful time of worship we've had thus far. The singing of these great songs and coming around your table and being so powerfully reminded of the gospel of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Your gospel, the gospel of God, as Paul writes to the Romans. The good news of salvation that comes through grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We thank you for that message. May we never shift from it. May that centrality of that wonderful good news never move from our hearts. And so, Father, we thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for the opportunity to give as we have just done. And so, Lord, we just pray that this may go towards the furtherance of the gospel and the mission of this church. We pray that that would be the case. We just give thanks now for these words that we have read. And, Father, as we just go through them and endeavor to explain and apply them, Help us, each one, we pray. Soften our hearts. May it not be just knowledge to us, but may it change us and cause us to be more like you. We give thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're starting a new series, 1 Corinthians. So if you hang around for a couple of years, you might hear the completion. And when we think about the epistles, all the epistles actually, maybe one, they've all got to do with a problem in the church or the churches that Paul wrote to. They're all generally about specific issues that have arisen in different churches that Paul has seeks to address. And 1 Corinthians, or even 1 and 2 Corinthians, is no exception. There was issues in this church like you would not believe. And as I was thinking about that, I often meet with other pastors and um, actually with a few of them um, 
three of them especially uh, every month or a couple of months and we have some lunch together and um, and a conversation is usually focused on our pastoral roles and responsibility that we have toward God and toward his people. But there's one topic that never fails to find a place at our lunch table. And that is the problems that exist in the church. Now these problems may range from immorality in the church, lack of commitment by the Lord's people, As pastors, our own lack of enthusiasm at times and and passion for the word of God, that's a problem. People leaving, dissatisfaction with the church by people and its leaders, even to church splits, you name it, we've discussed it. And no doubt we'll carry on discussing it. Problems in the church are plentiful. Uh, They always have been and we all in some way, in some way or another, have experienced issues that rob the believer of the peace and unity that God designed for you to have in a local church. And we've all experienced issues like that down through the years. Some of you who are younger may not know too much about that, but believe you me, knowing people and looking in my own heart and you looking in yours, we are good at creating problems and issues, right? Problems that, that suck the life out of any church. Problems that, that even destroy friendships, even divide families and pit them against one another. I sad to say an all too common past, present testimony of the church today. And I know that some of you here have been hurt and suffered from fallout of the kind of problems and issues that we've been talking about, that we talk about. So you know the pain, right? You know the pain. And to a degree, you know, when we think about this, when we think about this and the issues and the problems and the pain that it causes, to some degree we can sympathise and say no wonder that there are so many disgruntled, non-church attending believers out there who end up saying, like the writer of the book says, I love Jesus but I hate the church. No wonder. Well, folks, this is not how the Lord intended things to be. As a matter of fact, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed and said to his Father in heaven, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. You read that in John 17. As a matter of fact, three other times, Jesus makes it very clear in that prayer of his that his desire for his church was that they might work in unity together as brothers and sisters in the Lord's family. That was his desire. That was his prayer. And as we think about all this and we think about the series that we're going to and the book that we're going to be looking into of 1 Corinthians, the reason for this series is that we can have, as we look at this book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, we can have an inside look at this very privileged church and a gifted church, a really gifted church that loses its way when it allows the world and the culture 
to influence its direction. In many ways, this church was in a real mess. With problems and disunity running amok. Which, by the way, Satan loves to see happening in any Bible-believing church, right? He loves that. Satan will use any worldly enticement so that he can bring about such a disastrous outcome as we see in the Corinthian church. Satan is happy when one of the Lord's churches in the world becomes a church with the world and its ways in it. He's really happy when that happens. And this is what the privileged church at Corinth had become. Even though, think about this, even though it was founded by the great Apostle Paul himself, it was floundering in problems and division and quarrels and pride and worldliness, which is the reason why Paul writes this letter in order to confront and provide divinely inspired solutions for this church, for this church and for churches throughout all time. But before we get into the text a little, um, this morning we need some background here and of course we'll find that of this church at Corinth and what it was all about and how it started, etc. We're going to find that in Acts chapter 18. We won't turn there, but you will soon see in Acts 18 that the Apostle Paul, he meets up with, when he goes to Corinth, he'd come from north of Corinth after being hounded out of some cities like Berea and, and, and so forth, Thessalonica, and he arrives at Corinth and uh, lo and behold, he meets two believers, Aquila and Priscilla. They were from Rome originally, but they're being kicked out by the emperor because Christians were told, or Jews were told, that they had to leave. And so they, they came to Corinth, and they were believers, and he meets up with them there, and, um, and he was later joined, he was later joined by two mission companions, both Timothy and Silas, who had been with him earlier on up north of Corinth. And as was usual, Paul went into the Jewish synagogue, which there was one in Corinth, the city of Corinth, and um, he preached the word. He preached the word. And um, as his preaching intensified, so did the resistance to the gospel. Nothing's new under the sun, right? And so you might ask, well, what was Paul's basis? Why on earth did he go to Corinth? Was this because he was kicked out up there? No, 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 no. He went to Corinth. God providentially arranged the circumstances so that he was in Corinth. And the Lord appeared to him in a night vision. You don't have to rely on night visions. We've got the word of God. We've got something better. But Paul didn't have the full canon of scripture that we have. And the Lord appeared to him in a night vision and he says, do not be afraid, Paul. Go on speaking and do not be silent. Man, that's words that preachers love to hear, isn't it? Go on speaking and do not be silent. <laughs> and the Lord also said to him that you won't be attacked or you will not be harmed in this city. For I have many people in this city. That's what he said to him. That's what the Lord said to him. Acts 18, verse 9 and 10. And so a church was planted. A church began. And the Apostle Paul spent 18 months teaching the Word of God in this little church. But the usual opposition continued and Paul eventually, in the Lord's timing, he set sail for other mission opportunities. But we'll note if you read Acts 18 that something else happened here. 
that when Paul was on trial, he was sort of dragged up by the Jewish uh, leaders of the, of the city and um, he was dragged up and, and accused before a Roman uh, law court of uh, speaking out against God's law. Fairly serious charge, but the Roman court official threw the case out because he said it's not worthy of hearing. This is a Jewish matter. This is a matter of your religion. Get out of here. So he kicked the case out of court. Not worthy even of a hearing, he said. Well, the Corinthian Jews, they were enraged at that decision, at being dismissed so easily. And, um, and so they had to take this out on somebody. So you know who they took it out on? They took it out on the synagogue leader. And who was this man's name? His name was Sothenes. And I believe that this is the same man as we read here in Corinthians 1.1. And so they either took it out on him because he had become a Christian. Either he had become a Christian and associated with Paul or it could well have been because this Jewish leader, the synagogue leader, never put, they, say, they would have said, the case before the Roman court official strong enough. You never stack the cards, as it were, against Paul well enough. And so they took him and beat the living daylights out of him. Yeah, they beat him up. So whatever the case was, the next time we hear of this Sothenes is in 1 Corinthians 1.1. And we are told that this letter had come from Paul and Sothenes, our brother. By the way, this was, Sothenes was the second synagogue official that had come to Christ. The first one was a man named Crispus. We read of him in Acts 18 and verse 8. He was the first synagogue official who became a Christian under the preaching of Paul. And so now here's the second one, Sothenes. And so over this period, Sothenes would have been well known to the Corinthian church. And now here he was writing this letter with Paul. Also we see as we make our way through this book, this letter, that this letter is really a part of ongoing correspondence with this church. In chapter 5 verse 9 and chapter 7 verse 1 you will see statements there indicating that there had been another letter prior to this one that we have in our Bibles written by Paul. And not only that, Paul not only had written another letter prior to this one which has become known by scholars as the lost epistle but the Corinthians had responded to it. Now it seems to be that the content of that lost epistle was similar to what we have in the first Corinthians but more than likely it was focusing in, focusing in on some specific problem rather than covering so many as we have in this letter. So that's a little background of this church. This morning we're going to look briefly at Paul's introduction and his words in verses 1 to 9 because here Paul lays a foundation I believe for the rest of his letter a foundation in that he, that he deals with the foundational characteristics of those who make up a genuine local church anywhere in the world and so that's why it's super relevant to us here this morning Okay, and so the first heading I've got up here this morning is a true church has divine ownership. A true church 
has divine ownership. That's what we see. The first words of this address to the church, it should snap us all to attention because it clearly tells us who the church belongs to. Keep in mind, this is just introduction, okay? These first nine verses are introduction. Paul doesn't address any of the problems. He's very compassionate. He's kind. He's loving. He's diplomatic. I wish I had some of his diplomacy and maybe a whole lot more of his compassion. But as we will get into this book, you will see how on earth could he use these lovely words and great words to these rebel Christians. But he does. He doesn't butter them up. He speaks truth because in this church there were genuine believers and so he addresses them. And he speaks of the character of a true believer. And he reminds them and he simply says to the church of God which is in Corinth. You see that? This means, this may seem unimportant to us. But in our day and age, believe you me, there is a growing trend where people consider their church as if it was some territory they had developed and conquered and now that they rightly own. Church to many has become like having a membership in a club that is owned by its members to enjoy and opt in and out of whenever it pleases them. That's what it's become to many. It seems that this people ownership gives them right to say how church is run, how its worship is conducted, what's permissible in the church and what's not, and also what teaches. That's what it's become. Dear people, the church is owned by the Lord. It does not belong to me. It doesn't belong to you or any select group within the church. No. It's the Lord's church because God and grace has brought us together through the work of Jesus Christ and we are empowered by God through the Spirit of God to be His body on earth. That's what it is. We are His people. We are His slaves. We are His called out, set apart ecclesia, church, to be what? To be stewards of His church that we read of in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. It's His church. No matter how long that we have attended here or any other church, no matter how much we do, how much we serve or what we give in the offering, it is not our church. It's His. It's His. You see, when we begin to discount the truth, when we begin to discount the truth or dumb the truth down that we are not our own but we are bought with a price, you know what happens? Wrong attitude starts setting in. It soon leads to the head and the owner of the church, which is Christ, is demoted. Albeit in ignorance and unintentionally. When that happens, we start to become territorial, may I say, and feel that the church should function our way for our purposes and for our goals and for our personal benefit and satisfaction. It's not our church, folks. And we need to understand that clearly in order to value one another rightly. For we belong to the Lord. I might have told you this before. I always remember my dad used to say to us as young fellas, 
woman in those vulnerable years, you know, we could either go this way or that way. He said, son, remember who you belong to. Now, he had two meanings in that. We professed faith in Christ, but we're also the son of our father, who was a man of God. And so that had a whole bearing on our behaviour and the way we lived. But that's minuscule and compared. We belong to a church that's owned by the Lord. Right? Remember who we belong to. We belong to Christ, but we also belong to the Lord's church here at New Community Church. Number two. The true church members are identified as saints. I love this. If you've got self-esteem problems, and I hope you haven't, get a load of this. We see this in verses, second part of verse 2 and and right through to 7. You know, if if you want a correct identification, a correct ID of who you are as a believer, here it is. You know, society today is full of people who are unsatisfied with who they are. You ever notice that? So many people want to be like other people or be like their heroes or they want to copy others. So many people have personal identification issues. They really do. They're pressured to conform to be this way or that way or like this person or like that person. People are trying to identify, trying to tag themselves with an identity that is other than themselves. They want to feel accepted by others and so they'll go to any lengths to be identified with something or someone in order for that to happen. You know, whether it's by fashion, the kind of clothes they wear, or or the people that they mix with, that supposedly gives them an identification, an identity that makes them feel more accepted. Maybe, Maybe it's the tattoos that they sport. That's a growing trend, isn't it, you know? you want to be someone, man, you've got to get some heavy dude-like tattoos on your arms. And Our sporting heroes are full of them, you know, and hence the, it spreads. People are unsatisfied with who they are, with the skin that God gave them, so they've got to cover it up with other stuff too, whatever. Or, or maybe it's through the possessions that they have and acquire and want. Man, to be so, I really want to be someone, and to be that someone, I've got to get this and I've got to get that and I've got to accumulate all this wealth. Being identified, though, folks, is how we are wired, right? We need to be identified. People long for identity. That's, that's the way we are wired. That's the way that God has wired us, by the way. And believers are no different. No different at all. But a tremendous stability, listen to this, but a tremendous stability comes into your life when you allow the Bible to define who you are in relation to God rather than a shifting culture defining who you are in relation to all its glitz and its glamour and its trendiness. A tremendous stability comes into your life when you allow the Word of God to define. To know and understand where you've come from in relation to God and where you are heading in relation to God, and where you now stand in relation to God, will give you freedom from any identity dysfunctions and distractions that you may have. It will, it really will. Our identity in relation to God is described in a a two-link connection here in our text. The first link is what God does, and the second link is what we do. 
God calls us to be saints and we call upon him for our salvation. This is what the second part of verse 2 says. It says, To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, that's what God does, right? Together with all those who in every place call in the name of our Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's what we do. You see the two links there? So there is this, this, this decisive call of God to holiness that God gives and a decisive response that we give in calling on him. In other words, a true member of the church is a person who has been brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ by God. That's what it means to be called. You got that? That's what it means to be called. And that same person has responded to God's effectual call by turning from sin and self and calls out to Christ for mercy and salvation. That's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. And these two connecting links, a call from God to us and a call from us to Christ, that's what it means, folks, to be a Christian. That's what it means to be identified by God as a saint. Don't you love that word? That's the correct ID of true members of any local church. My dear people, it's not the pontiff sitting in Rome that confers sainthood. Believe you me, no way. Every true believer is forever sanctified, set apart. That's... that's that's sainthood, sainthood status being conferred. Every true believer is forever sanctified or set apart as a saint in the eternal eyes of God. Hence, no believer should ever, ever have an identity problem or be found wanting worldly identities. You can't get better than this, right? We're saints in the true sense of God's word. Not saints according to the city council or according to some religious body or, con- or, or according to the pontiff himself in Rome. No, 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 no. That's, that's all rubbish. That's not worth a dime. We're saints according to the word of God and God himself. But you might say here, but I don't feel like a saint or even act like one. I know I don't. Join the club. This does not change the truth of your present status in relation to God. It doesn't. You are a saint, yes. And knowing your identity and who you now belong to and represent, what that should do, it should spur you on to pursue a holy and a righteous life. Let me explain a little. If you know a little bit about general history, you'll know a little bit about kings down through the ages, no matter what kingdoms they have reigned in. But a king himself may not feel or act like a king, right? But his sovereign position that's been conferred upon him, what that should do, it should motivate him to act kingly. Or another illustration, probably more relevant to us, a president may not feel or act as a president should. And we know presidents in our time who certainly haven't acted like a president should, right? They don't need to name too many. But his position 
of authority and leadership conferred upon him by the people should motivate him to act presidentially. You got the point? And the same is for the saint of God. Us sitting here this morning, you have been saved. Though we may not feel or act as a saint should, our position, our new identity in Jesus Christ should motivate us and spur us on to live saintly lives. As we will see, the believers at Corinth were far from being saintly in their everyday lives. Far from it. Yet Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what does he call them? He calls them saints. And he wasn't just saying that as flowery words and making them feel better and to have a better self-esteem. No, no, no. He was saying them on the, from the authority of God himself. He was calling them who they were in relation to God. They were saints. But that's not all, folk. It gets better. It gets better. Because we see here in verses 4 to 6 that not only did God by his grace alone and Jesus Christ call them to sainthood status, but we see that by the same grace that he called them, he also gives them all they need for life and godliness. I love this too. He doesn't just save them and leave them. No way. This tells us here that the believers, the saints, are both called and kept by God. The same grace that calls them, the same grace that keeps them. In other words, God's not a grace on God, grace off God, grace on God, grace off God. No, no, no. That's why we sing and love the grace of God because it's called us with His grace and He keeps us in His grace. We're not left to ourselves. Each one of us are given divine enabling to know all that we need to know about God and all that we need to say and speak and witness for Christ. All that we need. Different? Yes. My abilities will be different than your abilities. Some will be greater abilities than others, but God knows us personally and has given all we need as individuals to live and speak for him. Every saint of God is enriched and is not lacking in giftedness. We see this in the first part of verse 7. God gives to us all the resources that we need to live saintly lives of faithfulness and service. You know, the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church was lacking in a whole lot of areas. It sure was. They sorely lacked in moral purity. We're going to get into that and see that a little bit later on. Man, they were bad dudes. They had problems. And then they surely lacked in spiritual maturity. Paul revs them up on that, tells them to grow up. And get off the milk and get into the meats, he says. They even lacked in love for one another. They come round to the table like this and they say, oh, okay, all you poor people, you go out into the outer court and all the ones that had money and wealth and better food, they came under the inner circle. Imagine that. They're still called saints. So they lacked in a lot of areas. But they had the same resources. They had the same resources, the same divinely given wherewithal as any believer. And you can read other letters that Paul wrote to the Colossian believers, the Thessalonian believers. These guys, they just witnessed for the Lord so that the whole world around them heard about them. Okay? not said of the Corinthian church by the way to that extent but the Corinthian church had the believers had the same wherewithal as other believers had 
They had the same wherewithal to live saintly lives. You see, Christ has made us complete. He hasn't left us half finished. He's made us complete in Him. We told that in Colossians 2 verse 10. Complete in Him. In other words, no believer can ever say, well, um, to live a better Christian life uh, and to live more saintly, I, I need this or that spiritual blessing. I, I need um, this or that spiritual ability. And if only I had that, then I could make a greater impact for the Lord and to live more saintly. No, 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 no. No, no. Every saint has everything they read right, need right now and we need nothing else from God. Why? Because he has faithfully given us everything that we need. You see, folks, failure is never, ever on God's side. It's only on ours. Only on ours. And that's what every saint of God has and is, folks. We are human testimonies of God's grace in Christ who have been divinely enabled to be and to say what God has confirmed in us. That's a saint of God living saintly. Now listen up now. Here's a question you can ask yourselves. Where do you stand in relation to God right now? You know, you can come to this church time and time again. You can sit in all the services, even take communion like we've done this morning, even for 1,600 times. Yet that activity in itself, that activity in itself will not identify you as a child of God. It won't identify you as a saint. Where do you fit this morning? You see, if you have not responded to God's call, this is what you're doing. You're still clinging to temporary calls of the world and that only leads to a lost eternity and how sad that is God's still calling for you to come to him finally we see that the true church has direction for the future and we see this in verses 7 or part of verse 7 into the end of verse 9 you know, as I was thinking about this section here, an important aspect of any person's worldview is being able to answer those big worldview questions like where do we come from and where are we going, etc., etc., right? Mankind has myriads of anti-God answers on that. But fellow saints, we know from the authoritative, inspired, inerrant scriptures that God has not only provided a past and present benefit for us, but also a benefit of an eternal future. Paul said this, you are not lacking in any gift, that's the present, right? And we can say that, we're not lacking in any gift right now, no, God has, has enabled us, you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus. That's the eternal future. All that last part is about the eternal future. Jesus is coming again, folks. He is coming. Are you eagerly waiting and ready for that? That's the question. True saints who live saintly are those who serve the Lord diligently in this world but know that their goal is not to create a present heaven on earth. No. Our goal is to point people on earth toward a future heaven. 
Why is that? Why do we do that? Simply this. We are looking forward to a time when Christ is going to be revealed in all his glory. And in that time, all sinfulness, all Christ rejectors, all unrighteousness, all injustice will be stopped and dealt with forever. No more sin, no more pain, no more tears, no more division, but only bathing in the pure righteousness of God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, in which we will dwell forever and ever and ever. Awesome, eh? That's what I'm talking about. That's the eternal future I'm talking about. That's a future to get excited about, by the way. Our faith in Christ is not just something anchored in history, folks, like a lot of religions around the world or a lot of worldviews and, and, and so forth. No, it's not just something anchored in history. It's something that fills us with anticipation for the future. Amen? Amen. Dear people, like the Corinthians did, as we will see, let us never forget that this world is not our homes. Because as we know, it is easy, and I know it as well as you, it's so easy to get bogged down with the things of the world, the things of this earth. Let us be saints who praise God for dealing with our sinful past. We thought about that this morning. Praise God for his amazing grace toward us in the present and the here right now and enabling us. And praise God for our future where our blessed Lord Jesus will what? He's going to present us blameless. You see that? Blameless, blameless, blameless. Understand that word. What a day, what a future. To be guiltless. To be a true glorified saint with not even the slightest inkling or the ability to think wrong, say wrong and do wrong. Blameless before God at His coming. Oh, what a day. That will be glory for me. Glory, glory for me. You sing that? Now some here might say, but how can you be so sure and confident about all this stuff? Simply this, God has promised it. It's a no-brainer. God has promised it. And he never fails or reneges on his promises. Never has, never will, because God is true, right? He will always be faithful to his word, as the text tells us in verses 8 and 9 who will also confirm you to the end. Hear that? Confirm you to the end. That's not maybe confirm you, might or kind of, depending on you, he will bring it to pass. No, no. He will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Our confidence is to, is to be in God, folks. That's it. Not in the plans and not in the schemes and the programs that even we as a church can build. Not in the church bank account or in man's cleverness. No, no, no. We don't have to fret or worry or push or anything else. Our confidence is not based in having this building in two years' time or four years' time, but in God, folks, in God, right? God is able to do far more and far above what we can even imagine. He is not we are not limited by circumstances, church premises, and even expensive leases. No, we're not. 
Why? Because we can have our confidence in God that he will work out his will with us. That's why our confidence can and needs to be in the Lord's face. If we want to be more effective as a church, as saints of God who live saintly, we don't need more confidence in things and in stuff, but simply this, we need more of him. We need more of him. In conclusion, as we reflect on these verses, I think there are a few lessons that we should draw and I'll just briefly go through them. Know, you, know who you are in relation to God. When you look back, know yourself as called by God and when you look at today and into the future, know yourself as being kept by God. Understand that, that what happened to make you a Christian is the call of God, yes, absolutely. And what keeps you as a Christian is the faithfulness of God. Called by God to be saints and kept by God presently and into the future. What an awesome truth. And if you're struggling with this, whatever, whatever, don't say this. I have not been called. So there's no hope for me. I've not been called. So I'm excluded. You see, folks, God calls sinners to repentance and faith and this call is designed to give you hope, not take it away, right? There is none ever so bad that God limits his call. God is rich and free to whosoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved, we have in Romans 10, 13. The call has gone out and might say it's still going out in God's grace. To all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've seen in our text in verse 2. My dear friends, have you responded to the Lord's call? With a calling to Him for forgiveness and mercy. I trust that you have done this this morning. Because if you call on Him, you are one of the called of God. Great truth, right? May God bless His word to us this morning. And uh, let us close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for confronting us all with your word this morning. Thank you for reminding us of the blessed privilege of being a called out person from this world, called to be saints. Oh Father, those of us who have been born again and are saved, we feel our inadequacy, but help us to live saintly lives. We know that we have the wherewithal. We know we have the Spirit of God indwelling in us and your word that teaches us. But Father, we still have the flesh that is so easily enticed and so help us as we go out this week to live for you. Help us to to say and be what you want us to be for your namesake. Father, if there are any here who are doubting whether they belong to you or not, Lord, confirm in them your call, we pray and soften their hearts so that they might call upon you in faith for salvation. So, Father, we give thanks for one another. Take us to our homes in safety and be with us for the remainder of the week, we pray, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the people of God said...